Hi, and welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, Executive Vice President at Hadar, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. Good morning. How are you? Okay, Avi. How are you? It's nice to be here with you. We're, we're especially early today. Yeah, today is an early Friday morning. I like to start my Friday mornings with a little bit of halacha, so this is this is just right. Maybe those of you listening are also starting off your mornings with a little early morning halacha with your coffee or your tea. The question we're going to tackle today is is sort of a different genre than some of our usual questions, although it's a genre we've hit on before. Um, we did a podcast once on what is Shinui? I just heard about this concept and it's totally bizarre. What's going on here? Um, so, so this is going to be a little bit in that category. Um, and I, and I think it's actually a perfect question for this podcast, for what we're trying to do on Responsa Radio. Um, where we say halacha in modern times. Sometimes I, I say something is a perfect question because it's a particularly modern situation, um, like taking a COVID test on Shabbat, for example. Um, but this one is actually, I think, going to get a little bit more at the theory behind what are we trying to do here. Great. Let's hear it. The questioner writes, I recently heard about the concept of batel hata'am batela hagzera. The idea that if the reason for a decree becomes irrelevant because the surrounding factors are not applicable, then the rule doesn't apply. It seems to me like this concept might undermine much of halakha in modern times. What is this idea and how broadly can it be applied? Yeah, that is a really interesting question. And as you said, kind of of a different type. And I feel like our answer and discussion about this won't be, well, Here's the answer, right, of what you do or what you don't do. But I think it would be helpful, actually, to get at a number of examples that might help us kind of play out what's at stake here. Let's start with... Well, start start us off with just where does this concept come from? Uh, where do we first hear it? It doesn't sound like it's from the Torah, so maybe it's from somewhere later. You can tell us where where does it come about? Yeah, it's definitely not from the Torah. It's not even formulated as such, as far as I remember, in rabbinic literature. It's a kind of medieval reflection on an abstract level. Hey, we have all these rules. When are they in play? When do they get reconfigured? And I want to just define carefully for a moment the term gzera, because the questioner says, oh, the reasons go away, maybe the law doesn't apply, that could dismantle the entire structure of halacha. But actually, gzera is not the same as mitzvah, right? Gzera is a rabbinic decree, maybe an ordinance, something that is understood to have originated at a specific moment in time where the rabbis or other communal authorities came along and said, hey, we got to put some restriction in place or some rules in place here uh, and forbid something that wasn't forbidden in the past. So we're talking about something where, again, you came along at some point, someone did, and said, this is permitted, but we got to forbid it now for this reason. Mm -hmm. What if that reason then no longer applies? Where does the authority of that decree, that gzera, continue to rest? So the whole concept actually doesn't say anything about mitzvot or or laws in in either the 
laws from the Torah or the oral Torah or rabbinic laws. It's actually about later rules that later rabbis made. That's right. Now, there's no small number of those, and they affect people's lives in a lot of ways, and we'll get to some of them. Yeah, it's important for us to remember that when you say uh, a concept comes up in, in medieval times, that seems old to us, right? That's history. But actually, for them, that was modern times. Um, you know, that was the times that they were living in. And and just a reminder that they're they're playing the same game we are. They're doing the same project that we were of looking at the world as it is and saying, you know, I don't know, is social media allowed on Shabbos? Um, but that's just, that question hadn't come up yet. Yeah, exactly. Response to radio medieval version. We could do that one time. <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, let's talk about one text, which I feel like is the backstop for the discussion here, even though it's very controversial or unclear how to apply it. There's a Mishnah in Eduyot, one of the Masechtot in the Mishnah. Um, and it says the following. I'll just read it in the original. Ein beit din yachol levatel divrei beit din chavero ad sheyitia gadol mimenu bechokma uveminyan. One court cannot nullify or undermine the words of another court until it is greater than its predecessor in both wisdom and number, meaning it's a larger court. So we have here a general principle that the decrees and interpretations of early rabbinic courts can be overturned by later ones under certain conditions. It seemed like pretty high bar. That's right. On the one hand, you can, but on the other hand, it seems like you do have to overturn it, right? If you pay attention to this text, it says, oh, if you're greater in number and greater in wisdom— you can undo what an earlier court did. But it does seem like you still have to come along and undo it, meaning the notion that, well, I look at it, I see the reasons don't longer, you know, don't apply any longer. Forget it. I can let it go. This is saying, no, you might think it should no longer apply. You'll still have to go through a process, take some kind of vote to undo that. And it's not something that's happening on an individual level. I don't get to just wake up this morning and say, well, that Gezerah doesn't apply to me. It's something that has to happen on a communal level. That's right. And if you think about it, it seems pretty parallel to the way we would think about laws being passed in legislatures. Like a later Congress might come along and say, that law seems stupid, but it's on the books until they rescind it. They can rescind it if they have the right authority, but they're going to have to rescind it. We don't just get to say, oh, now that law is not in effect anymore because doesn't make sense. Yeah, makes me think of uh, the recent story of daylight savings time and uh, and everybody sort of looking around at each other and saying, why were we doing this again? We can't quite remember, but yet we still need a group of people, of leaders, to actually say, we're not going to do it yeah, anymore. That's right, because society on some level depends on there being some predictability to the legal regime that you then reevaluate from time to time. So, all right, that gives us one anchor. There's another text that gives us a little bit of a different picture. The Talmud is talking about the second day of Yom Tov, a topic worthy of a responsive radio episode in its own right. Um, and it's reflecting on the fact, at least from the perspective of this passage, that the assumption is communities in the diaspora are observing a second day of the various holidays because they have some degree of calendrical doubt as to what the actual day is, because they're not sure when the new moon is sighted in Jerusalem and so on. And at a certain point, 
the Talmud pipes up and says, but we now do know what the day is. We have like a calendrical computation. We're no longer relying on eyewitnesses to the moon. So why do we still do it? Again, there's something so great about that already in the Talmud, right? You're not saying, you know, and and the reform movement in the 1970s said, but we have a calendar. It's already in the Talmud. Right. They're asking that question. Their answer is, that's how your ancestors practiced. And you might need to go back to having that system because maybe you'll forget the calendrical computation or you'll become dependent on the moon again. So you got to keep it. But if you pay attention, the cadence of the passage seems to assume that if you didn't have that supplementary reason or fear, you might look at a practice and say, oh, the reason for this no longer applies. I'm no longer going to do it without some court coming along and voting to overturn it. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit in tension with that Mishnah in Eduyot. You can obviously distinguish between the two because you can say the Mishnah is talking about formal rabbinic decrees. And maybe the second day of Yom Tov is just a minhag, just like a longstanding communal practice, but not something where any court actually came along and decreed it. That makes it more enduring or that makes it easier to change? Not clear. I think according to this passage, which comes from Beitzah, you might say it's simultaneously more enduring and easier to change. Yeah. In other words, on a legal authority level, it should be easier to change. But as a matter of continuity of practice, it might be like what we've always done it this way. Right. It makes me think you can change rules much more easily than you can change habits. Yeah, that's right. So I'm putting those two out there as kind of an anchor for the question, <laughs> which is, how do we understand what an earlier decree or practice is grounded in? Is it grounded in authority? Is it grounded in reason? Um, is the reason-based option only really in play when it's a mere minhag, like a practice or custom, and not a firm rabbinic decree? All of that is actually a bit unclear. And here I'll reveal my bias, and maybe we'll get into a couple examples. I'm very resistant to making questions like this about firm, abstract principles. It's like, oh, if you look up in the encyclopedia of halacha, you will find the rule, batel atam betelag zera applies here, and it doesn't apply here. I'm very skeptical of that because I think case law is generally the much better guide. Mm -hmm. And there's a real intertwining here of case law and legal principles. I think if we look at a few examples, we might get a better picture. And then I might suggest one way of thinking about what might be going on underneath the surface. Yeah, let's hear some of those examples. Okay, so let's start with cheese. Everyone loves to talk about cheese. Yes. <laughs> um, cheese purchased from non-Jews was a contentious topic back in the Talmud, also in the Middle Ages. It's a very old prohibition laid out in the Mishnah that one of the things Jews are not supposed to buy from Gentiles and consume uh, is their cheese. But the Talmud then kind of goes bananas of why? What's the problem? What's the issue? Yeah, what do they have against cheese? And Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi comes along and says, Mishum nikur, snake venom. The fear is you've got, uh, you've got, you know, coagulating milk turning into cheese. It's left out. Um, Animals are around. Snakes might come along. I can't wait to bring this one up in regular conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's assume for a moment that 
there's some reality there, right? That's very different from ours, um, where there is some kind of fear, actually, for the ways in which that cheese is produced as opposed to cheese under your supervision. And it triggers the following process. Rabbeinu Tam in the Middle Ages says, that's the reason. Of all the many reasons given in the Talmud, that's the reason. And we don't have snakes around anymore. And therefore, Gentile cheese. That's right. Gentile cheese should be fine. And this is the key thing for our questioner. Rabbeinu Tam says, and you don't have to worry about the earlier Beit Din's authority. You don't have to worry about that Mishnaic court that decreed, hey, you're not allowed to eat Gentile cheese because of, according to this version, snake venom, because they only made the decree where there were snakes. In other words, Mm. built into their framework was, we take for granted there are snakes around, therefore we're forbidding this. Sure, we can't really imagine it, but if you were to offer us a scenario where there were no snakes, of course we don't mean this decree to apply. So he's not overturning the rule. He's also not saying ignore what the rule was. He's saying that rule never applied in this case. That's correct. And then he'll go on and say, hey, there's people in Narbonne in southern France who eat Gentile cheese once they check that it uses vegetable rennet as the coagulant and there's no other ingredients Mm -hmm. issues. And this then becomes a great example of one authority saying, find the reason, determine it doesn't apply, and then drop the law. And he uses this phrase, this concept? He uses not exactly this phrase as an abstract principle, but he's working with that same text of, oh, you're not allowed to have a, you know, Beit Din's ruling overturned. I'm not overturning it because it never would have intended to apply. So it's not his formulation, batelatam batelahakzera, at least to the extent that I remember, um, but it is fitting into one version, right, of that mode. And just to be clear, what's at stake? When Maimonides addresses the same question, he says, uh, I don't care if all the ingredients are fine, and I don't care if there's no snakes around. There was a decree. You're not allowed to eat this, and it's meant to be comprehensive. And that becomes much more dominant in later halakha, right? That is to say, the reason when you go into a kosher supermarket, you see all kinds of kosher cheese, right? is in no small part due to Rabbeinu Tam being more of a faded position over time, where people weren't just willing to say, well, I don't know, it's there's no snakes around, this has vegetable rennet, why wouldn't it be like any other product that we just sort of supervise, right, mm-hmm. and make sure there's no, uh, there's no problem with ingredients? Like, plenty of people will buy milk, right, without any kind of kosher certification. It's because of the fear that maybe Rambam's right, maybe the decree is in some way um, actually comprehensive and not just targeted to this reason. And because you raised the axis of authority, I just want to clarify, this is a case of two different authorities speaking, not a case of two different people who have different practices in their own home, which is a phenomenon that happens with Kashrut all the time. Oh, my home has one sink and my home has two sinks. That's our own idiosyncratic choice. This is actually a case of of authorities. Correct. Two people disagree. So Rabbeinu Tom's one example, if you're looking for, hey, I'd like to find some people who push aside decrees when the reasons don't apply, you would go to Rabbeinu Tom as one example of someone who did it in this context. 
come back to maybe some other way of understanding it. Another one people might have heard of, the repetition of the Amida. Hmm. You have the silent, private uh, Amida, the standing prayer, 19 brachot during the week, um, and then the public recitation of that afterwards. And it's often called, right, Chazarat Hashatz, the repetition of the Amida. The second you call it the repetition of the Amida, it's in a bad branding place, right? <laughs> it's like, I already said that. Why am I saying that again? Um, so the question is, what? where is that coming from? And already in the Talmud, at least a reason, if not the reason given for it, is Rabban Gamliel and the sages are kind of arguing over What's the what's the purpose of this? The question is, why do we have to say it out loud, or why yeah. do we have to do the silent one? E either one. Uh -huh. right? why, why are we, are we doing this twice? Why are we doing this twice? Such a good question. Yeah, right. Um, and the the sages there, the chachamim, answer: Some people don't know how to do the amidah for themselves. Therefore, we have to do it out loud for those people. This is such a beautiful answer that sounds so twenty twenty two. Well, not everybody knows everything and universal design. We have to create a service that is accommodating. Um, it's such, that's amazing to hear it in the ancient voice. Yeah. So that's like potentially, in all kinds of contexts, a very compelling explanation, right? And I think you're right. We have now all kinds of greater sensitivity about what does it mean to make something accessible and all the dimensions that flow from that. But it, of course, implies the opposite as well which is, according to that justification of the public Amidah, well, if everyone in the room knows, why are we doing it? Uh -huh. And can we at least exercise the option of foregoing it? That comes to the Rambam, to Maimonides, again, appearing here. People ask him in the Middle Ages, wait a minute, in our community, everyone knows how to daven the Amidah. Um, isn't it actually problematic for us to do the public Amidah, because we're saying God's name over and over and over. Maybe these are blessings in vain, brachot levatala. Yeah. So he says, no. When the sages make a decree for how you're supposed to pray, it's comprehensive. It's the new form of the ritual. There's no concern about blessings in vain. And you might have to be worried that the situation they were afraid of will still arise. So we still have, you don't know, one time someone's going to walk in who doesn't know. And because of that, even if you know that they won't actually in this moment, you know, be uh, be in need, uh, you can't sort of jump back and forth between different regimes. So this is the second case where you told us we have to do the thing even when we don't know the reason. But then we sort of come up with a new reason, which is we might not be as wise as we think we are. We might actually need this, even though we don't know we need it. That's right. And I want to come back to that because I think that is an angle here under the surface that's maybe helpful. I'll give you one last example. Wearing a four-cornered garment made of linen. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that should maybe stir up for our listeners uh, whenever you say the word linen, Jews hear the word linen. They're like, oh, God, where, ah! where's the wool coming in <laughs> stage left? The fear of wool and linen together being shatnez, being a forbidden blend. Um, and in general, you're not allowed to do that. The exception is 
the Torah does tell you, you must put a p'til t'chelet, a blue dyed woolen thread on the four corners of your garment. And it's very clear, a garment can be also pishtan, pishtim can also be linen and mm-hmm. not just wool. So there's this targeted authorization of a wool-linen mixture when it's wool tzitzit on a linen garment. Okay? That's the, the background so here. Confusing. The question is, well, can you justify putting wool tzitzit on a linen garment when you don't have tchelet? when you don't have the real deal blue dye, mm-hmm. which, of course, until it was rediscovered in the 20th century, and they figured out the Murex trunculus snail is the source of this, and now people have started producing Ooh, it again. Let's do that episode next. <laughs> that could be fun, too. Um, it was gone, right? Tchelet was not a part of Jewish life. And the question was, so if I don't have, like, the real deal tzitzit, can I put them on a linen garment. And there was debate over that. Like, is that legitimate or not? So the Rosh in the Middle Ages, again, big medieval episode today, uh, he comes to Spain from Germany. And he finds that in Spain, everyone is wearing linen talitot. And there was a fear, actually, among many authorities, you shouldn't wear linen talitot at all. Because even if you put linen tzitzit on them, which was one opinion, oh, huh. if you don't have the wool, you know, the tzchelet, then you just, you might end up putting a wool on there and get confused. I like, just say, don't do it. That's what I would expect, actually, as a result. So that's Rosh's assumption. But in Spain, they were like, no, we'll have the linen talito. We won't put, you know, wool on it in a, in a forbidden way. And he has this moment where he's like, if I tell them, they can't wear their linen talitot, uh, the mitzvah of tzitzit will disappear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are not. They don't have woolen garments. Like, it's just not going to work. So he's like, how am I going to justify them going against what feels to me like it was a, a gzera, a prohibition, like, don't wear the linen talit because it will yeah. create problems. So he says, not everyone agreed with that. First of all, you can, like, rely on the on the lenient views. But also, and here's the key, he says... The strict views don't really apply when there's no tchelet, meaning when actually there's no concern of the mitzvah um, being in its full form, people won't be tempted to actually put woolen strings on a linen garment at all. They will only stick with like linen strings on the linen garment. And here's the key thing he says, Kevan sheta'am yadua im ta'am since everyone knows the reason is a fear that you're going to take woolen strings and put them on this garment, if there's no reason to be afraid people will behave that way anymore, and everyone knows that, then once the reason is gone, the authority of the decree is gone. Okay, here's what I think is amazing about that story, right? When I hear you say, maybe someday we'll forget the calendar, and I think to myself, that will never happen. That's absurd. Um, that He never could have imagined in the story you're telling us now that we would actually discover Trelet. That's an absurd thing to say, okay, but since nobody ever is going to discover Trelet, it's fine. And guess what happened? That's right. We did discover Trelet. That's right. That's crazy. It's chastening in a certain way, right, of sort of remembering how these things go in cycles, even if it's on the scale of centuries and millennia. But still, 
right? It's there. That's, I think, what makes this concept so scary, right? It makes me want to tread lightly is if we are making a decision about daylight savings time, it's like, okay, we're making it for now. And if we end up in a different society, we can just change it back, Um, which I suppose is also true of these halachic concepts. But the idea that we are making halachic decisions in our time that could still be around a thousand years from now for the Jewish people in the future gives you a different kind of weight. Yeah. to, to d- decisions you want to make. Yeah, we don't have a legislature with regular elections and protocols that can be a kind of security blanket for some degree of process and stability of, okay, we have a process for revisiting this. Our legislature on some level as the Jewish people and you know the world of halakha is in our mind and our analysis and our writing and our persuasion and you put something out there, it's like very unclear. Can, can you get the authority back, right? It's very easy to think about, you know, to me, one of the most amazing and shocking things in American constitutional history is amending the Constitution to forbid intoxicating liquors and then repealing that, uh-huh. right? You have this total swing, if you will, like a gzera and then a complete undoing of the gzera but a whole process that kind of carried it out. Can you swing back and forth? I think part of the fear of, oh, I've gotten rid of this gzera. How will you ever bring it back? Yeah, imagine trying to reinstate second-day chag. Right. You would need a <laughs> that court. That will not happen. Right. You would need a court of a certain kind of authority that's very hard to imagine. I mean, the closest we have to it now is the return of Jewish life to not just the land, but the state of Israel and the intertwining in ways that are both amazing and horrifying of kind of Jewish law and state power, Uh that's created a new kind of place where, yeah, different things could sort of be rebooted. But that's a very unusual kind of circumstance in the broader sweep of Jewish history. I want to drill down on the Rosh's use of, since the reason for this practice, where he's talking about the linen garment question, is known Therefore, if the reason goes Mm. away, the decree goes away. And he's hedging there, but in a way that I think may get at the deep answer of what's really going on here. He's hedging there to say, you know, sometimes we think we know the reason for something, but actually either A, we don't, or B, how I would reformulate it, there might actually be more than one reason why something is happening. If we retread these examples, that we saw, I think that's present actually very clearly once you think about it. So cheese. Yeah. Rabbeinu Tam comes along and says, oh, it's about snakes, right? Which is one example of what's going on in the Talmud of why they think it's forbidden. But I think when you consider the Rambam's resistance there and the notion of, no, this is a comprehensive decree, you can't muck with it. And when you look at later halachic discussion on this, you find that there is an unstated substratum of, what do you mean? This is actually part of the way we maintain Jewish distinctiveness. Mm -hmm. This is actually about separation through certain kinds of food for its own sake. You can hear that almost in the the choice of snake, right? Is it's not a random choice. It's like mm, those there's snakes there. That's really interesting. That's right. what you got to watch. Is there out a for. symbolic element, right? And then we can argue over that, right? And where does that apply and not apply? And how should we think about that? And 
broader questions of Jewish-Gentile relationships being embedded in a larger web of humanity. But to expect or to get too annoyed, hey, you told me it was about snakes. Why aren't you being lenient now that there's no snakes? Sometimes we need kind of the humility and the perspective to say, oh, maybe something else is going on. Right. And then I would say that's the layer you can see in addition to it. But maybe there is another layer also that we can't see that even when we say, well, nowadays we know that Gentiles are not snake-loving people, maybe there's yet another reason that, you know, that that could go all the way down. Right. And I think the repetition of the Amida is another thing like that as well. Maybe our problem is, well, we're calling it the repetition of the Amida because we are going all in on the explanation of, yeah, you don't really have to do this, but you have to repeat it for people who don't know. But if you actually think about the public Amida, it has things that the private Amida does not. It has Kedusha, it has birkat kohanim. It has these components of blessing and sanctity that are liturgically distinct. And maybe the real reason, in addition to what's going on in that discussion, is there's actually something about publicly worshiping God <laughs> in a communal way that is not captured by doing it kind of under your breath as an individual. And of course, vice versa, to just have a leader get up there and lead it, but without everyone actually forcing themselves to articulate the words for themselves, you'll miss one or both of those dimensions. So the Rambam, whether or not that's his language, I think was intuitively feeling what are you talking about? Like Jewish worship has this private moment of devotion and this public mode of sanctifying God's name. It makes me realize that the question of the reason and the action is actually cutting it off too quickly because there's a third chapter, which is the result, right? There's the, we did it for this reason. This is what we did. And this was the result. And if you then take away the reason and you take away the action, you'll also take away the result. Um, and in some cases, that result is all the best nigunim and davening are coming out <laughs> when we sing together. Um, you know, that's the moment where we're really becoming a kahal. And when you take away the reason and say, let's just mumble through everything, then then that what's lost is so much greater than just the reason that you went in with. Yeah, I think it's a great frame. And it kind of I really like the language of result. And what what did we get out of it? So I think this is on some level be like my answer to the questioner. The cases where people in this halachic discourse seem to feel free to get rid of something. You know, another example is like water, leaving water uncovered was another thing they were afraid of with snakes. I think snakes. about that every time I take a sip of water. If it, I, I won't drink from a cup of water that was out all night. <laughs> okay. But, having read those passages. <laughs> all right. So my migulim, though, that category, overall, it's very non-controversial in observant circles, halachic discourse to say, yeah, that doesn't apply anymore. But why, I would say to you, that reveals Nothing ever came of that restriction other than avoiding the fear of venom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it didn't create a larger world of ritual, of outlook, of social structure. And therefore, on some level, when that's the case, because you can say, it turned out there really only was one reason and nothing else stuck. And also there was no impactful result. That's right. But even something like the second day of Yom Tov, which people have very strong feelings about, and obviously a lot of people on the warpath, right, to get rid of it. Or kitniot on Pesach, right, various kinds of legumes that are not chametz, but that became entrenched in Ashkenazi practice to avoid. 
when people resist that, I don't think they're just being stubborn of not wanting to quote unquote change Mm -hmm. because those same people will drink uncovered water. It's those practices generated something. The feel of what my Pesach table and palette is like. The liturgical uh, context around the second day of Yom Tov. All kinds of poems that were written or structures. I don't know if the Tikkun Leil Shavuot, staying up all night, would ever have been generated without a second day where you're also recovering. And you feel this sometimes, like when you go to Israel and you see diaspora practices in the liturgy and in other things being crammed into a one-day regime doesn't actually work so great. (laughs) And that's a window into maybe there's sometimes more than the ta'am yadua that the Rosh is talking about, this notion of, oh, everyone knows what the reason is. Maybe, first of all, not only does everyone not know, um, but there may be things that we haven't even actually articulated but are implicitly there. It's a great reminder also that um, that our lives are so not static, right? On the one hand, we want to have a concept like this in order to acknowledge the fact that our lives are not static and things are changing and we should be able to repeal Xera, you know, or we need a concept like this just to make a Xera because otherwise, you know, if you if you can't amend the Constitution again, then there is a lot of fear in amending it. Um, maybe you need this sort of as a release valve. Um, but it's also a reminder that that it's just it's not as simple as a switch. You know, oh, we lived in that time and now we live in this time. Actually, it's a it's an evolving weave of of a ritual life. Um, and it's just not so simple to say how what is the real reason for something or what was the outcome? And that sort of uh, you know, the way the questioner said, you know, how far reaching is this is like, well, actually, we want to be really thoughtful about when you would reach for this concept um, so that we don't end up, you know, with nothing. Yeah. And like many things, whenever we talk about topics on halacha, how do we move the discussion from, hey, how could I get out of this or how could I be lenient about this to an invitation to search for meaning and purpose? And I think that feel like they stick around beyond what you would have expected they're welcome to be are that kind of invitation. Maybe they're actually encoding something. To use your language, there was some result that they produced in our personal and communal lives. It turns out to have been more enduring than we might have thought. That really gives us a lot to think about. Thanks. I was thinking tomorrow, but I just might leave today. Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at halacha at hadar.org. That's H-A-L-A-K-H-A-H at hadar.org. Responsa Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute. Thanks to Jeremy Tabak for producing this podcast and to David Chavinsky for recording and editing this episode. And therefore I Welcome the change I welcome anything That's anything Separate from where I stand And I'll proudly brave This new world That exists outside your head I'll be a shadow too Yeah, honey.